0: Thank you for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. Our current series is called Power and Weakness, a study in 2 Corinthians where we look at how we experience Jesus' power and grace in our weakness. We hope this message encourages and challenges you, and we would love to see you at one of our services at 5.30 on Saturday evenings or 9 and 10.30 on Sunday morning.
1: A reading from the book of 2 Corinthians. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. And as a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore... Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates both body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. The word of the Lord.
0: The high point of our worship this morning will be after the message when we come to the Lord's table and through the broken bread and the cup, remember how much Jesus loves us and we sit with him and welcome him afresh and anew into our lives. So you can already be anticipating that time. And then after our time of communion, we have a very important announcement that will be made this morning that will affect the Waterstone family. So we want to encourage you to stay in the room until the very end of the service so that you can hear this announcement we have to share this morning. Let's pray as we come before the Lord to listen to his word. Lord, take the shoes off this church, not only physically, outwardly, actually, but inwardly also, Lord, Take the shoes off this church. The shoes of pride and of fear. The shoes of complacency and boredom. The shoes of tribalism and factionalism. The shoes of complacency and doubt. Lord, Take the shoes off this church, that the humility of its worship may touch the whole life of its people. And to this end, put the shoes on this church, that it may go out and serve all women, all men, from every place and every culture, everywhere, Lord, serve. In Jesus' name, amen. Early in Michael Hyland's career, when he worked with the electric power crews in New Hampshire, word got back to him that a customer was upset after experiencing a series of power outages over a short period of time. As anyone would be, said Hyland, now Senior Vice President of Engineering Services with the American Public Power Association. The customer representative had tried to explain the problem to the man a little something people in the business call chew. In other words, squirrels had been chewing through the lines and otherwise interfering with the seamless delivery of electricity. He was really mad at us, Hyland said. You're lying, he said. I've never seen a squirrel do that. It seemed inconceivable to the man that such tiny jaws could lead to such big problems. So Hyland set out to convince him. We called out to our work crews and said, hey guys, when you're out working, if you get to a site and find a squirrel that's half burnt, we want you to bring it home and put it in a box. (laughs) After a few weeks, Hyland's crew went to the man's house box in hand. We visited him with 27 squirrels, some of which were still smoking, he said. (laughs) Hyland was reprimanded, but he had made his point. I've been involved in the squirrel war for 30 years. And it's a war that shows no signs of letting up anytime soon. I like that story for two reasons. One, it's memorable. I mean, what could be better than a box of smoking squirrels? But second, I see in that story a parable for life. We will all go through times of power outages, of of boredom, of apathy, of listlessness. And it's in those times that we need to look around for chew, unexpected, unseen culprits that are sapping the power out of our lives. In fact, this is exactly what the apostle Paul was writing to an ancient church in Greece, 2,000 years ago. Watch out for chew. I know I'm really forcing. I've been waiting six months to use that story, and we're we're using it this morning. No, Corinth, this church, was chewing on its pastors. They had a picture profile for what they believed the pastoral candidate should be. And the founding pastor of this church, Corinth, did not fit their profile. They thought they knew what it meant to be spiritual. They looked at Paul and saw a man always suffering for the gospel, an unpolished speaker, they did not respect him. In fact, you get the impression from 2 Corinthians that this church was embarrassed by Paul. Not only were they chewing on their pastors, they were chewing on their culture. We haven't spent much time talking about the city of Corinth, so today, just briefly, two words about Corinth. First. Corinth was an extremely wealthy city. The reason is because of their geography. This is northern Greece and Athens and southern Greece on the Peloponnese Peninsula. Corinth sat right in the middle, four-mile stretch of land to Centuria, and they had developed, Corinth had, a system of canals and lifts that could get ships and uh, wagons from across this Uh, by uh, four miles, saving a six-mile trip around the southern peninsula of Greece. So because of the transportation fees and taxes, Corinth became a very wealthy city because of their geography. In fact, there's ancient mock-ups of the city of Corinth. You can just see how beautiful the downtown part of Corinth would have been, especially an 18,000-seat outdoor amphitheater, which was the only one in its class at the time. An amazing city, so it was wealthy, it was well-to-do, and it was the largest city in southern Greece. But there's another word you should know to know ancient Corinth, and that's the word Vegas. Gordon Fee, one of our great New Testament scholars, calls Corinth the Las Vegas of the ancient world. The reason was because just outside of the city was a mound, an 1800-foot rise, as if someone's pulling the ground up, and on top of uh, this, they called it Acro-Corinth, or High Corinth, was a temple The remains today uh, the temple to Aphrodite. You may have heard of the goddess. She's the goddess of beauty, love, and fertility. And in ancient Corinth, there were a thousand prostitutes on duty 24 7 because what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That's what it was known for. In fact, a crass term for the sexual act in the ancient worlds was to corinthianize it was the city of sex and so corinth is chewing on its culture here they're trying to decide how do you engage culture but not accommodate to culture how do you be as jesus said in the world but not of the world and this wrestling with how to engage culture was causing some chewing and in one other place. They're chewing on their pastors, they're chewing on their culture. They're also chewing on one another because they're trying to decide how to navigate this culture, and it's causing a lot of disagreements in the church. If you briefly walk through 1 Corinthians, as we're about to do, you'll see this chew. Chapters 1 to 3, 1 Corinthians, they're trying to decide who the best pastor is, who the best speaker is. Chapter five, there is an open and public affair going on in the church with a man sleeping with his mother-in-law, and the church is boasting about its freedom in Christ. Chapter six, there are believers taking other believers to court and filing lawsuits in order to protect their business. End of chapter six, there are people in the church going to Aphrodite, enough said. Chapter 10, they're fighting over the role of women. In the church, Chapter 11, during communion, the wealthy in the church are staying in cliques and having nothing to do with anyone else. Chapters 12 through 14, in Corinth, they're fighting over which spiritual gift is best and who should have the mic on stage. Chapter 15, they're fighting over what happens when a Christian dies, what happens to the body, and when's Jesus coming back. They're chewing on each other. <laughs> trying to figure out how to navigate their world. Now, we want to pause here and ask, how in the world does a church like Corinth and a church like Waterstone have so many issues? The answer, the best one, is given by Jesus' half-brother in another letter in the New Testament, the book of James. Here's why Waterstone has problems. What causes fights? I mean, Corinth. I mean Waterstone. What causes fights and quarrels? I mean any church. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your what? Desires? Desires. That battle within you, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Desires. James locates the struggles that any church has, not with what they're teaching, that's important, not with what they're doing, that's important, but what's deeper, what they want. It's not what they know, it's not what they think, it's their wanting wrongly. You know, everyone in this room and every person in the world believes there's something in life that's so important that in their imagination they've been captured by it because they believe it will be the hope that gives them happiness. It's called the loves of the heart. What you are counting on to live a fulfilling and satisfying life. As one philosopher teaches in Michigan, James K. Smith puts it, You are what you love. You are what you love. That's true for a church. That's true for us as individuals. The struggle starts in the heart. The heart, I think it was Emily Dickinson or maybe Selena Gomez said, the heart wants what it wants. And that's the truth of our lives and our decisions. It's about desire. Paul agrees, which is why he locates power outages at Corinth in the heart. Look at verses in our text, 11 through 13. Paul starts here in addressing the power outages at Corinth, the chewing. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. I want to pause there. This is highly unusual. Usually when Paul is writing to a church, he calls them Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. What does he call them in this letter right here? Corinthians. He does that only two other times, once in Philippians, once in Galatians. And in both of those texts, and including this one, they are highly charged, highly emotional text Paul is worked up he is emotional about this and he's trying to connect with Corinth at the heart level spoken freely to you Corinthians and open wide your hearts to us we are not withholding our affection from you but you are withholding yours from us That's an interesting Greek word, withholding. It's literally a compound word, steno, which means cramped or restricted or stiff. And choreo, which in English you hear the word choreograph, dancing, Corinth is doing a cramp dance. They can't move. Paul says, when it comes to the gospel and the mission, as I said in chapter 5, to see every person reconciled to God, that's the mission. I am passionate about it. Corinth, I want you to join us in that mission. And when Corinth hears it, it's can't move. It's not moving me. Sorry. They either can't hear the music of the gospel or they won't dance. Paul says, that's where it starts. You have these power outages. You're chewing on each other because you have stopped listening to the music of the gospel. It begins by looking into your heart. What's going on in your heart? That's where I want to pause and do some diagnosis with Waterstone. 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 Are we passionate about seeing people reconcile to God? Does it move us? Does it make us dance to our neighbors? Because we cannot wait to have a first-time experience again with the gospel and how our neighbor responds. Have we, have we lost our passion for the good news that Jesus loves us and saved us? Let's do some diagnosis, Waterstone. Uh, I'm I'm getting some outside help this morning from a great pastor in Manhattan, uh, Timothy Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, here's how to look into your heart and see a bit what's going on inside your heart. Three tests, and we'll go through them quickly, but solitude. He says, think about your solitude. It was Archbishop William Temple that said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, when you have a moment when you don't have to think about work, when you don't have to think about family, when you don't have to think about friends, when you don't have to think about even yourself, I mean, where does your mind go effortlessly when it has a moment to think or dream? That may be your God. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Second test, money. Now this is not original with Keller. There was another man who once said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That was Jesus, and what Jesus meant was, wherever your money goes effortlessly is your God. So where does your money go effortlessly? It would seem that if we have been captured by God and His grace, that we would be making astonishing sacrifice for the mission of Christ. Third test, uncontrollable emotion. So Keller is here saying keep track of your life for a bit and note which emotions are surfacing. Emotions are like Uh, Lights on a car dashboard, right? If one of them goes off, you need to lift up the hood and see what's going on underneath. So let's say the anger light goes on. You you sit down and you evaluate your life the last week and you know you've been angry. You've just had maybe some, you know, a little explosion uh, to yourself or on some other people. And where is this anger? Whenever you have this sense of anger, look under the hood and ask yourself, why am I so angry? angry where is that coming from there's a good chance that you're angry because you know god hasn't come through for you god hasn't answered your prayers god hasn't given you what you think you need in your life at this time and the thing is that thing you think you need for this point in your life that may be your true god How about another emotion? The light goes off on the dashboard while you're driving through life and it's the the shame light. Shame, guilt. You're dragging this around. Look under the hood and ask yourself, why does this shame and guilt just keep grabbing a hold of me and pulling me down? Because I know in my head, I know that Jesus has the last word on my life and, and even my sin and his last word is cleansed. Forgiven, Separated as far as the east is from the west. Your sin is not the last word on your life because Jesus has forgiven our sins. So why do I keep saying that is the last word of my life and keep holding on? It may be that you have hold of the wrong God. So we... Have these power outages, these times of listlessness and boredom in our life, Paul says, start with the heart. Look under the hood. Take some time and evaluate what's going on. And then, when you figure out some of what's going on, Paul goes on in the text to say, and here are two ways to restore power. So he goes on in verse 14, and he has this if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this verse a number of times, <laughs> especially when you were a teenager in the youth group. <laughs> Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I'm glad you heard it there, by the way. You should have heard it there, by the way. But let's unpack it a little bit, because Paul says, look, to restore power in your life, the first thing you need to do is evaluate your relationships. Relationships with people and relationships with culture. So let's unpack that. Let's start with the word yoked unequally yoked. It's an interesting word that literally means mismatched or differently partnered. It's from the agricultural world, which, which you knew if you grew up on a farm that you would never plow a field with a donkey and a horse under the same yoke. Why? Because they have very different worldviews. <laughs> very different dispositions, very different purposes for walking. You would never plow a field with a donkey and a horse under the same yoke if you wanted a straight line or finish before lunch. In the same way, an unbeliever and a believer trying to plow a straight line in an important partnership is going to be cause for some misery. Why? Because they are incompatible at the heart level. You are what you love. And for a believer and an unbeliever, they love very different things ultimately. That's the rest of Paul's text when he breaks into poetry and has this cadence of five different things about how incompatible uh, Christians are with unchristians. Here's what he says, don't become partners, I put it in the message by Eugene Peterson so it'll jump at us a little bit. Don't become partners with those who reject God. How can you make a partnership out of right and wrong? That's not partnership, that's war. Is light best friends with dark? Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Do trust and mistrust hold hands? Who would think of setting up pagan idols in God's holy temple? So we evaluate our lives looking under the hood. Are there any relationships that are just dragging with energy because we are unequally yoked? Now, you're saying, Larry, give us some specifics. Okay, let me give you a couple of specifics. I think at the very minimum, this does mean that Christians should marry Christians. A Christian should not marry, you young folks or you single folks, a Christian should not marry an unbeliever, why? Because if a Christian marries an un-Christian and you are what you love, you are creating, I know, early on, all you see is romance and beauty and good, but down the road, having loved different things, I've seen it, it's a recipe for loneliness and misery because at the deepest level of existence, a Christian loves different things than, a, than an unbeliever. I mean, different values, different view of the world. It can be a hard, hard life to plow through it unequally yoked. I mean, it gets to the very purpose of what marriage is. Why are you getting married? For a Christian, here's what marriage means. Two words, growth. Second word, gospel. Gospel. Christians get married to grow. Marriage is designed by God to be a laboratory of love where you learn how to live an other-centered life. And frankly, that's hard, which is why I like to tell young couples, you know your marriage is working when it feels like a slow way to be crucified. (laughs) That's the point. That's the reason. You do not, listen... You do not get married to be happy, you get married to be holy. If you're going into this thinking you're going to be happy, let's talk after. <laughs> Growth. Second purpose gospel. Christians get married to display this kind of other-centered life so that people in their community and and neighboring network watching them can say, wait, you're telling me that God loves me the way you love your spouse? And you say, yes. And they say, I need to know more about that. Because what I see is intriguing. Intriguing. Christians get married and Christians stay married even when it's hard to display the love of Jesus Christ. Fierce, gritty, unstoppable, unbreakable love that Jesus has for us. Christians marry Christians because they share the same purposes of marriage. Let me talk about another yoke, business. Now I'm not talking about just working for a job, working in any company, I'm talking about a high level kind of business partnership where you may own the company together. And that, being unequally yoked, that could be a hard go. Here's why. Christians and non-Christians have very different goals in business. For a Christian, the goal is the glory of God. It's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's taking the church to task because he says, look, you only care about your bottom line, and you're taking other Christians to court, and you're dragging the name of Jesus through court and lawsuits. Paul says, you should rather be willing to suffer wrong and be cheated than to go to court for your bottom line. That is a very different view of business. You see, for a Christian, Christians do business to make God's reputation great in the corporate world. Unbelievers do business for other reasons, much having to do with the success of the bottom line. And if you're in business at a high level, a business ownership, and you have different purposes for business, there's going to be struggle and conflict. Let me give one more. This is more with our culture. So the first two have more with relationships with people. This, this one has more to do with how we relate to our culture, and it's especially applicable from Corinth. Sex. I have your attention now. Christians have a very different view of sex than their culture. Christians see sex having two main purposes. The first purpose of sex is what Timothy Keller called in a sermon, commitment apparatus. The purpose of sex is to use the equipment to tell another person that I am giving myself completely to you. Completely. Physically, emotionally, mentally, economically, every way, everything that I am is yours and I give it to you and it's symbolized and pleasured in this experience of sex. And that's what sex means to a Christian. It's a way to tell another person I am completely yours. That's why it belongs in marriage. If you take it outside of marriage, what you end up doing is giving your your body to someone physically and saying it's yours, but you're not giving them your emotions and your economics and your, your mind. And that's why premarital and extramarital sex can leave really deep scars on the heart because you're misusing the commitment apparatus. The first purpose of sex for a Christian is to... To give your complete self to another person in marriage. And every time you have sex in marriage, you're renewing your wedding vows. Saying again, I am yours. Completely. Do you know there's another purpose of sex for a Christian? It's why the Bible begins with a wedding of Adam and Eve, God officiating the ceremony, and ends with the wedding of Christ and the bride. Because the whole arc of the biblical story is to say that God wants marriage and the sexual act to be a foretaste of what it's like to be united with God at the end. It's why there's no sex in heaven. Why there's no marriage needed in heaven. Because in heaven, we will be the full, in the full presence of God and have the full pleasure of God always. Like C.S. Lewis said, the serious business of heaven is joy. We won't need marriage. We won't need sex. But we get glimpses of it now. You see, salvation is God coming into your life and saying, uh, I, I want to rule over you. And he will. And salvation is God coming into your life and saying, I want to shepherd you. And he will. But you know, salvation is also God coming into your life and saying, I want to marry you. And one embrace from Jesus will obliterate a thousand years of loneliness. And so we have a very different relationship with sex in our culture. And I would argue strongly, as I think you get a sense, that Christians have the highest view of sex that can be had. Examine your hearts, because power outages start in the heart, and we first examine our heart to see what we need to separate from, what has too much hold on us. and then. Having done that, we go on to the rest of the text and think about what we need to embrace in the Spirit. Paul puts it this way in verse 16, for we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. This is a string of five Old Testament quotations going from Leviticus to 2 Samuel to Isaiah and Ezekiel. In other words, Paul is saying, look, the whole Old Testament has been saying this, that the goal of all creation is for God to dwell among his people. In fact, when you get to Revelation chapter 21, it says that God will dwell with his people and he will be their God. The whole point of history, the whole story that we're in, what's the definition of reality? The definition of reality is God wants to live with us. And he begins to give glimpses of what that will be like now by calling us the temple where he will live. And we call that whole experience that once you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and starts to live with you, the, we are a temple for the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And in two minutes, let me just unpack what that means. This is the coolest stuff about being a, a, a believer, a Christ follower. First, it means the spirit of adoption comes in. It talks in Galatians and Romans about when the Holy Spirit comes in, we, we, we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, we have a dad. We, we have someone we can call Father. And he gives us that spirit of adoption. It means that we can call him the same thing Jesus called him, Abba. It means that we have constant communication. In Romans 8, it says that when we're going through struggles in life and we don't know how to pray and we just sigh and groan, it says the Holy Spirit is interceding and interpreting our sighs and groans to the Father. And it works the other way, where God talking with us, in John it says, the Spirit helps us understand God's scriptures, so we know it's not just a book, it's a voice, and we have this gut feel that Jesus is who he says he is, and he's called us to this mission, and he's working in our lives now with what he calls the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So every day it's like, God, okay, what are we working on today? Love, okay, let's go. What are we working on today? Patience, joy, Gentleness, self-control, what are we working on today? Every day it's being transformed and made more into the image of Jesus. And we have this spirit of unity. The New Testament talks about when you and another person from a different culture and around the world both say Jesus is Lord, you are immediately brothers and sisters. And if you've ever traveled internationally and had that experience, where within five minutes talking to another Christian you have this sense, yeah, they're my brother. They're my sister because you have Jesus in common. Everything else is rearview mirror. You also have this sense of witness. When the spirit comes in, he empowers you, empowers me to be a witness, to bring Jesus courageously, boldly into a conversation. And you know what the spirit's always doing? He's stirring with your raw material the things you read, the food you cook, the shows you watch. The things that happen at work. All of that is the raw material. They're brought into an innocent conversation, uh, but you, you feel this tap on the shoulder. Okay, okay, you're talking about this. You know about this, but mention me. Mention me. The Spirit empowering us to bring him in to conversations. Paul says, when a church is having a power outage, when we're having power outages, look under the hood. It starts in the heart. What's going on there? Once you discern some of that, separate from any relationship, whether in culture or with another person that is draining you, and embrace again more deeply the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. All of this comes to verse 1 of chapter 7 as we get ready for the Lord's table. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. I would like us as we come to the Lord's table to actually pray this verse using an old Quaker prayer pattern. The Quakers used to have prayers of confession and they would start with their their hands out and palms down. Would you please courageously join me? If you feel comfortable, don't want to force anyone to do it if they don't want to, but hands out, palms down, asking Lord in a moment of quiet, Lord, what do I need to let go of? What is taking up too much space in my heart? What's distracting me from mission? What do I need to give to you and say, Lord, take it from me. Hold your palms out and let it go. Give it to him now. And then if you would turn palms up, Lord, what do I need from you? I want to be filled with an explosion of the Holy Spirit who would make me a, a neighboring believer. Who, I, I need an explosion of your Spirit to let go of these sins that I keep holding on to. Whatever it is, whatever you need from the Lord to walk more deeply with his spirit. I need friends. I I need a mission at Waters. Whatever it is, tell the Lord, Lord, please, I'm ready to receive. Explode in me, Holy Spirit. And it may be for some in the room today that they're hearing all this. You want Jesus. You need Jesus. Not only to save you from sins and promise you resurrection life, but you need him for like the next hour just to calm your heart and speak love and truth to you. Just hold your hands open and say, Jesus, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm yours. And So now we come to the family table, the Lord's table. These words of invitation from Jesus himself. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat this bread, remember me. In the same way, after the dinner, he took the cup and he said, This cup represents my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this cup, remember me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This morning, if you love Jesus, come to this table. Tear off a piece of bread. Dip it into the cup. You can take it right there at the station around the room or back to your seat or anywhere in the room. Take this time to honor Jesus and love him and let him love you.